Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise online and join today. Today, my guest is Anna Auerbach, who I met when she was a senior at Brandeis University interviewing for a business analyst role in McKinsey's Boston office. She earned that role and spent her first few years post-college at McKinsey, She then spent a year at the American Museum of Natural History in New York before earning an MBA from Harvard Business School. Following business school, she went to the Bridgebank Group, a nonprofit consulting arm of Bain & Company. She moved on from there to become the COO of Moonridge, a philanthropic advisory organization. Then she branched out on her own, starting Work.co, a SaaS-based platform designed to bring personalization and flexibility to the workplace. She sold that business to the Mom Project, and joined the executive search firm Egon Zender two and a half years ago, where she focuses on technology, digital, and product officer roles. Anna has earned a range of industry recognition, particularly for her time as an entrepreneur. She lives in New York with her husband and two children. Anna, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. It's been a long time since the two of us have talked, so I'm looking forward to catching up. Thank you. This is great. And good not to be in an interview context. but a different interview context. Yeah, exactly. So that was for a long time ago. I do remember that day, you know, very, very clearly. As I told you the other day, you came across as driven and scrappy then. And I was happy that we decided to offer you a job and clearly things have gone well for you since then. So congrats on everything. That's very kind of you to say. I think it might have looked good on the surface, but I was terrified under this, you know, behind the scenes and on the inside. So I'm, I'm glad it came across that way. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but I think you know, that experience really set me up for so many things. So I'm really grateful for that and grateful that this comes full circle in this conversation. Yeah. You know, look, you talk about nerves. I mean, I've interviewed enough people at this point that I generally will look past nerves to a degree because everybody gets nervous in an interview to, to some degree, just, you have to be confident that when the person's in their day to day, that they're not going to be like that. Right. That it's just the the moment. So anyway, let's talk about your current role. You work in executive search. You focus on tech and digital and product offer searches. You know, the world of search is kind of a mystery to a lot of people. Tell our audience a little bit about what your day-to-day work is like. Yeah, of course. So um, I'm at a firm called Egon Zender. What's interesting about the firm actually is that we're European-based. And so one of the things I really love about our particular flavor of search is it's got this beautiful sort of global European international element to it. And we as a firm are pretty equally split between search and advisory, which also I think gives it a really different element. I mean, we're not transactional search. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment, but we also combine it a lot with leadership advisory, coaching, succession planning, everything around culture, team effectiveness. For us, it's never about just placing a person. It's around, you know, our whole thing is leadership for a better world, right? And we think about leadership holistically. But search in a nutshell is helping place executives, right? And I think 
I personally have a really hard time with the word headhunter. I'm not hunting anyone's head. That sounds awful. But I like to think about it as, you know, kind of an executive search, executive placement, um, and really helping to place the leaders of tomorrow. Yeah. You see sort of what companies are looking for. You see relatively senior people, senior people, you know, aspiring to something more. So you're at a very interesting intersection. I know every search is different, but, you know, can you describe what a representative process goes like? Sure. And I think the interesting part in being in search is most times people think about you as, you know, placing people and that you sort of represent humans as an agent. Really, we work with clients, right? It is client right. service and client advisory ultimately. So yes, we try to manage both sides, but really we work for our clients. And so as you think about a typical search process, of course, there isn't a typical one, but right. to break it down, I think, you know, it really starts with, you know, meeting with clients, understanding where their needs are. So we think about it as sort of the getting to know you part of the conversation. And as when you see enough of these arcs, you realize like that's when success or failure really is set up. And so much of it is around asking the right questions and really understanding the needs. It's almost like the marketer's fallacy, right? If you ask people what they want, they'll tell you what they want, but that might not be what they need. And so I think a big part of the search process starts with asking really great questions up front to understand like the need for the role. Was someone in this before? What's the context? And you also have to be just a broad business person. So it's not about, oh, I need a chief product officer for the software company. Well, what's happening in that space? Is it a growing space? Is it a dying space? How is the company positioned? Who are its competitors? You know, what does the future roadmap hold? And so I think this job at its best is a strategy job right? and really getting smart on each industry. So I'd say each search starts with sort of that exploration, intake, understanding, asking lots of questions. And then we do a lot of calibration. And calibration is, is it more this or is it more that? And so in search, you use something called a search strategy, which is where are we looking? Where are we looking for this person? What might this person look like? And calibration is important where we sort of test different types of profiles, sometimes it's just on paper and through stories of people we've gotten to know. And sometimes it's for clients to have a couple of test runs of conversations and then things really pick up. <laughs> and then it's really around, you know, myself and my colleagues being out in the market, as we say, you're learning all the jargon today, getting to know candidates. We go really deep on assessment. I, I don't, you know, listen, I've only been at this search firm, so I don't know how others do it, but I would say we're very deep on not just looking at a resume, understanding somebody's competencies. So what have they done from a leadership capacity, functional expertise? And the other big thing for us is we have a framework on potential. Mm. So for us, it's less about what you've done, but what you can do. And frankly, when you think about the importance of sort of diversity, underrepresented populations, the best way to get at that is not what you've done. Not everybody's had the same opportunities and right. the same path. It's around what you can do. So really, we go very deep on assessments, what we call present candidates. We share their story. We share you know, our summary. And then clients get on to meeting them. And then a lot of that work then transitions to the client to run right. people the interview process. We help design that. We're, you know, kind of talking to both sides all the time of how is it going? Who are they meeting? A big thing is around where does someone need to build conviction, both client and candidate. Mm. And then we're super hands-on in the, what we call closing process. So agreeing on terms, offer onboarding. We stay involved through onboarding most often. So it's really actually kind of incredible and intensive and so much more than find a person, place a person, yeah. everything from market expertise to like really thinking about negotiation. And that's the fun of the job. You mentioned assessments a minute ago. Do you always put people through in a, a battery of assessments or is that up to the client? So we, for ourselves, to feel like we operate with integrity, 
and quality and feel like we're actually getting to know people and giving companies somebody that we really stand behind, we do our own assessment, which really is around, it's a, really, but, but it's about evidence of behaviors, right? And things that are evidence of either leadership competencies and qualities or this potential model I talked about. Right. Some clients go deeper and like do all the psychometric and have, you know, other things that they assess for and have their own, you know, kind of third parties they use and always referencing. I will say like guidance to the audience is keep warm with people that you would put on your reference list and make sure you know what they're going to say. Generally, we're not surprised. Sometimes we're surprised. And just so everyone knows, like the secret is we're going to call what we call soft references. It's people you didn't give us. So if you don't put your, you know, previous boss on the list, we're probably going to find them and call them because there may be a reason why you didn't put them on the list. So that's just something for folks to know is I think, particularly as you progress in your career, leaving places in the right way and reputation and track record really matter. Like everybody's career is blippy. Everyone gets to make mistakes. You're not going to get along with everyone, but handling, you know, transitions of grace is exceptionally right. important. Right. I know some people who view themselves as senior people read into who from a search firm first reaches out to them, right? Is it a partner? Or is it an associate? And I, I don't know. I mean, can you, from your perspective, is there intent behind that or does it, does it come down to more just who's got the bandwidth to do the outreach? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know if I have an easy answer. I mean, for us, we never have, you know, sort of uh, our research colleagues or our assistants reach out. We reach out personally. It's very important to us. Mm. I think every firm operates differently. I don't think anybody should read into that. I think it might have to do sometimes just with pure bandwidth. I don't think it really means anything. The only thing I would say is take the call. I always say, take the call. I find it interesting when folks respond and say, well, I'm not looking. Well, that's great. But like, that's a chance to get to know you. And how will I know when you're looking if I don't have a chance to get to know you? So I don't think who reaches out to you matters, but if you have the capacity, my advice is take the call. At worst, you spend 30 minutes and are on someone's radar and maybe help a friend or colleague because you're also going to be a source for them of advice and ideas. Right. So there's like a beautiful pay it forward to this. So my advice is just to always take the call when you can. Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people, like I said earlier, the search world is kind of a mystery to them. And they don't really know how to build their network in the search industry. What you work for the client, as you said, but for somebody who wants to be known by the relevant search firms or the the relevant people in the search firms, like an Egon Zender, you know, or somebody who's outright interested in a new role, what's the best way for them to get in your database, on your radar, you know, because I know you don't have time to talk to everybody when they're not necessarily a fit for something you've got right then and there. It's a great question. I So do your homework and reach out is the only advice I have. So by do your homework, I mean, look up the firm, make sure they do work in your space. Like it's amazing how many reach outs you get of people, you know, who are reaching out to somebody who doesn't have their expertise. You can actually quite easily, and any guns under or anybody else's website, find who, you know, sort of runs your area. Say you're a CMO, find the CMO practice, find who leads the CMO searches. It's not me, by the way, right? So, so not be the right person to reach out to. And then you sort of get lost in the pings of emails, but find the person that does your relevant work and then just reach out. I think pretty much every search professional at the very least will say, send me your resume so I can update our database, right? I, and our work is in combination of sort of working through known quantities. So folks that we know well, and that we've gotten to know over the years, and like, we all have our sort of stable of folks that we've just developed relationships with over time. 
Second is recommendations from networks, which is why I'm like, take the call, help a friend, you know, help a colleague. Like you, you can help your friend find their next job, right? So it's recommendations. And the third is the database. And mm-hmm. our databases are only as good as the information that's in them. LinkedIn obviously does not let us API into anything. Nor does <laughs> and that's the same with every search firm. LinkedIn is very protective of that. So we may not have actually up-to-date information. So I'd say at worst, you know, the search professional will say, just send me your resume. I'll make sure our database is updated. And at best, you get like a 30-minute phone call and get to know each other. But I think right. just do your homework and reach out. And no one says no. Those emails don't go ignored. Like they go somewhere. So... Yeah. Well, I mean, it's in your interest to know everybody who's in the areas that you do work. That's right. right? That's right. But but reach out to the right person, right? I think the whole general contact info submission forms, don't do that. I think, you know, we all have easy contact forms on the website. I think it's important to contact the right person because it also shows that you're invested and you've done your homework. Everybody wants to feel like you're not just sending your profile to, you know, 50 search professionals that you also are being deliberate about the relationships that you're cultivating. Yeah, fair enough. What have you seen people do to help themselves and hurt themselves once they get into a search process? Oh, so many observations. We could spend a whole hour on this probably. Where to start? Say, help themselves. I Do your homework. <laughs> this is my theme always. It is, I find it incredible, you know, and so valuable when somebody comes prepared and has done secret shopper. So I, I have a confidential CEO search I'm leading right now. And one of the candidates I spoke to, we had an initial call and then we scheduled a follow-up to go a little deeper to do the assessment. And he starts the call with, you know what? I signed up on their website and I did the mystery shopper and I have, can I ask you a few questions? And I was like, yes, you can. That is awesome. You know? And so I think taking the initiative, doing your homework, know the company, know their latest news, know who you're meeting with. That sounds so basic, but so many people don't do that. Um, Ask for feedback. So ask good questions. It's okay to ask at any point, how am I doing the process? What's the company excited about? What are they not excited about? Who else is in the process? You can ask us that. We might not yeah. tell you proactively, but you can say if there are, you can ask if there are other candidates in the process and it helps you think about how to position yourself vis-a-vis who else is in the process. We won't give you names, mm. but we can give you an, an idea of, oh, hey, you're up against somebody that's more of a digital native. Like You might want to think about how you trump up your tech experience as an example. So I think that's important. Having references ready, I mentioned already, and then being sort of responsive to the process. So clients are prone to add interviews, add exercises, add psychometrics. I think the more you are comfortable with that, as opposed to sort of pushing back and being surprised, like really ultimately, like you need to go with the process and similarly sort of adapting to the conversations. I think what helps candidates is being good listeners, taking cues on kind of who you're meeting with the style, what they're solving for, having done your homework, you know, and somebody is, you know, appear to this role, ask them how they want to work. I mean, these are such basic things, but you'd be shocked how many folks don't do that. So I think all of those things help candidates along the way. The converse is what, is what hurts, right? So I think what hurts candidates is when we pick up on ego, to be honest, mm. when candidates that start picking up, why do I have to do this? Like, why do I have to fill out like an education verification form? Or like, why do I have to go to do another interview? I already met with them. Like, well, that's what the company's asking you to do, you know? So that really hurts. I I would just, you have to check your ego at the door for sure. So that really hurts. And then reference surprises. Never want that. You really don't want that. And so just be prepared. um, Talk to your references. Tell them that, you know, they're going to be getting a call. You can't script them, obviously, but at least be prepared for what they're going to say. And similarly, just, just know in your head that whoever is doing that search, be it direct company 
or search professional, they're probably going to call people you didn't provide. And so just kind of being prepared for that and, you know, having managed those relationships well over time, I think is important. It all sounds really basic, honestly, now that I say it, but I think those things are really, really important. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously the sort of outright things you can do, you know, misleading something on your, you know, in your background that gets. Oh yeah, don't do that. (laughs) And actually, you know, the other thing I'll say is, listen, we've had difficult situations where there's a legal situation. Like we do negative press searches, you know, so if there's like a lawsuit or like, you know, there's something negative that was in the news, we'll find it. And you have to at these levels. And there's been difficult situations where people have had convictions, things like that, you know. I think the most important thing is, listen, we're humans. We're not perfect. Is actually being upfront. You know, there was a situation that happened recently where there was some like really negative press about someone and some allegations. And I think if you actually get ahead of that and say, hey, by the way, I just want you to know there was a situation in the past. This is what happened. You're going to find it, you know, and here's what actually happened. And here's what I did about it. Or here's how I grew from that. That actually helps someone. We had a someone in the process who had a, unfortunately had some bad situations and like an alcohol problem and since got help and actually they still got the job Mm. and it's because they came clean about it and were really open about how they grew as a person and explained that that was a moment in time when they were going through something very difficult. And actually that increases your esteem for someone. If someone is able to sort of, you know, be humbled by something like that and talk about personal growth and their journey, that's only a positive thing. Yeah. All right. So then you get to the offer negotiation, right? Let's assume you've, you've gotten the job. What portion of people in your experience negotiate the offer? Probably about half. Yeah. Half don't. I'd say, you know, things you could do that are important is look at public information on comp. Don't ask for crazy things. Don't be surprised, you know, and it actually, so rules have changed in the search world. So we are not allowed to ask your current compensation and it comes from a good place, which is you do, it is actually around a lot of things that have happened with entrenched gender and racial bias. And so you want people who have had an artificially low salary to keep getting an artificially low salary. So we are only allowed to ask compensation expectations. Right. When you state those, like we know you're usually taking your salary and adding something to it. Like (laughs) that's generally how it works. But just before you do that again, back to homework, companies have proxy statements, public companies look up what executives make, you know, like there's, there's really easy information you can find. And honestly, for companies that aren't public, there's some pretty quick Googling uh, between Glassdoor and things like that. You can get a sense of what comp is like at the company. Don't throw out something that's like three times, you know, what peers make if that's something that you want, right? Probably don't pursue that process. In terms of negotiations, yeah, I think being informed around what's possible is important. I think most people, half the people don't even ask. They take what they get and... Mm -hmm. I hopefully by the time you get that, you know, there has been a conversation around comp expectations. And so of course, I prefer offers that don't have surprises, you know, that is much better. I would say the only advice there too is, is to be thoughtful about before you get to that place, like what is important about you? If you think about sort of the three main components of comp around base bonus and then long-term incentives, I think it's important for people that are going into a search process to think about what's important to them and where their flex factors are. And ultimately, if you're trying to maximize total compensation, knowing where you can be flexible can actually get you more overall. Conversely, you know, I think it is in this day and age, it is wonderful to talk about your life circumstances and perfectly acceptable. Like I have three kids in private school. Tell me that. Tell the client that. Like we, we under, like people understand, right? I don't think this is a check your personal life at the door situation anymore. And so for some people, base is very important. And I think it's okay and good to be open about that. 
But I think reflecting on the components of compensation, what's important overall and kind of which where you have some flex, I think is really, really, really helpful, particularly if you're trying to maximize your overall package. Yeah, that's a good point. And I have a, a friend, HR professional, who always hires an employment lawyer to help her negotiate her offers. Portion yes. of the time, do you see a, a lawyer in the middle of all this? Not enough. And it shouldn't be in the middle. So that's the one caveat. So okay. I think once you cross the VP, you should have an employment lawyer on call for searches. Like I, I really do. And, and maybe even before that, right? So I would say there's no hard rule of thumb on how much these things cost, but you know, you're talking about depending on the contract, the structure, the type of industry, like, you know, if it's a publicly traded company, you know, if it's sponsor backed or if it's VC, like you're going to, there's different complexities to these contracts, right? but uh, fine. It's 500 to two to $3,000 out of pocket. You're going to protect yourself so much. And so it is worth every penny. And so I think I don't see individuals sending their contracts to employment lawyers nearly enough. And I've started just proactively advising that with any candidates I work with. Yeah. I think it's, you know, what, what is the contract for? It's really to protect downside risk, right? And so to spend, you know, 1500 2000 whatever it ends up being out of pocket to help you in a severance situation and to help you in a transaction situation, I think it's incredibly important. Legal language, I stay as far away from legal language as I can. Legal language is for lawyers and like an and or an or is going to make a massive difference. And so mm-hmm. I think making sure that you have a, re- a great advisor on this is important. What I probably would not do is put them in the middle. Sometimes they, people do that. I think what is helpful is, particularly if you're working with a search firm, is to send the contract to a lawyer, get the comments back, understand the magnitude of the changes. Right. And once in a while, just connect the lawyers. Often it's very simple, small things that get changed and they end up being non-controversial. Things can get sort of intense when you have lawyer to lawyer. It just depends on how difficult the contract negotiation is. I, I've never really seen it go sour, even in like really difficult CEO situations. I think it is really important after like VP, SVP, at those points, you really should have an employment lawyer and you're stable and have somebody that you can rely on and send the contract to. Even if they're like, yeah, this looks good. You want that and you should be happy to pay people to say, yeah, this looks good. I think that's very important. You mentioned an important point, which is having them on call in advance, right? Because it, it takes time to get that set up with them. And you know, when you've got a company on the other end waiting to know whether you're going to accept the offer or not. Exactly. Yeah. But you run the risk that the lawyer, the law firm that you have on call may end up having a conflict, right? They could also have represented the company in the past. Yeah. And then then you have to kind of start over, right? Yes. Although the one thing I'll say is until you get to like the very big leagues, you're probably not going to a big firm. You're probably like, so for example, my husband and I both used an employment lawyer in the past and it's like a single shingle guy and he's awesome and he's great. And he is, he's very open about the types of contracts he's good at and the types he's not. So the chances of that being a conflict are slim to none. Like if you go to like one of the, the big, big law firms, sure. But I do think we're having a couple recommendations from your, if you are embarking on a search, one of the things, you know, there's sort of to the point of homework. There's a few things that I would do if you're embarking on a search. Look at your LinkedIn. Make sure it actually makes sense. <laughs> make sure there's not weird dates in there. Make sure it actually reflects what you're doing. Obviously, you know, people still use resumes. Brush up your resume. Make sure you have your list of references, even if you've not given them a heads up yet. Like start thinking about that. Make sure you have a couple of employment lawyer options on you know, called just as an example, I really haven't had people who have like their own guy or gal. That's like Mm. a smaller firm have conflict. So I would just have like a person you could call. Yeah. But if you are actually undertaking a search, I would line 
all of those things up as you embark on a search, because when things pick up, so the reference example also, um, the request for references comes quite quickly, right? Right. You you might not be expecting it. And suddenly, you know, you have five, six conversations, like actually we're going to need your references next week. And then you have to hustle all these conversations. And I'm thinking about searches right now. Imagine August, everyone's on vacation. And what you don't want is to have your offer be delayed because the company can't reach your references. And so, you know, sort of buttoning all that up so that the train can hit its stations on time is really important. And just having that ready. But the LinkedIn thing, by the way, I know we weren't talking about LinkedIn. That is where everyone goes first. So make sure what's on it, like make sure you like your picture, (laughs) make sure like your bio actually makes sense. Make sure the dates actually line up like little things. It's it's just the housekeeping. Yeah. Fair enough. You were running a software company, which we'll get to in a minute, which you sold. How did you then end up in the executive search world as a next step? Oh, that's a good question. So there is a thread, which is the software company was very mission-based. It was it started around the idea of women being underrepresented in leadership and really expanded to the idea of how do you foster more inclusive work cultures and how do you offer flexibility at scale as a way to retain, motivate, you know, and inspire employees and sort of breed a more diverse, more inclusive work culture. When we sold a company, I had this moment of realizing I had no idea who I was anymore. I think I'd always had my five-year plan. And when you launch a startup, like your five-year plan is the startup. There's no other, you're not interviewing for other jobs, you know, you're not actually looking at to the outside. And so as we were selling the company, I had this moment of like not knowing who I was anymore. You know, I'd been a founder and that was so wrapped up in my identity. And, you know, I went very broad. I talked to, I went back to my mentors, to friends, actually it's a dear friend who actually does assessments at a different firm that I went to. It was incredible advice for me. And I was like, do me, help me figure out who I am. Like I, I, I'm lost. And so I actually had a ton of conversations with all sorts of, I thought about operating roles. I thought about being a founder. I thought about, you know, I actually thought about going back to McKinsey. There's like lots of things I thought about. And to fast forward a much longer exploration process, Egon Zender really drew me in. So I think I started more on the candidate side of our conversations um, for other searches for clients, and then quickly started considering the opportunity. I I loved the people. I love the international flair of the organization. And, you know, the more I thought about what is it that I loved about the startup, the more I realized for me, it's around, you know, creating the future of work and really fostering the, you know, the future of work cultures. And how do you do that? Software helps, but who was using our software? People. Like who influences changing companies is not software. Like for all the good that I feel like our startup did and for all the conversations that we fostered, who was having the conversations as humans. And so ultimately I actually found this a beautiful way to continue to carry this torch about, you know, the future of leadership by doing search. We place people in positions of power. Who else shapes company cultures and who else shapes the world? And so for me, that was the connection point. And then the other insight I had is I went from having been in professional services for a while and being a founder. I didn't ever think I was going to be an entrepreneur. I really am quite risk averse. And I think the realization I had is I went one way, I swung the other way and the right way is down the middle, which is, I used to hate the term, but I think I was meant to be an intrapreneur. So Mm -hmm doing something entrepreneurial, but within the context of a company. And so here, I don't have to worry about, are we going to make payroll? <laughs> Which was really stressful. I don't know if I could go back to that ever again. And so I know we're going to make payroll. And I know we have a marketing team and an accounting team. And I know invoices are going to go out. 
but I still, you know, in the two and a half years I've been here, I've been able to build new things and try new things. And I think that's the beauty of it. So I was trying to make it a short explanation, but that's a bit of why I landed where I am. And so I do feel like I get to continue the same torch that my uh, startup was carrying. Yeah. You were really ahead of your time when you were focusing on flexibility and inclusiveness, you know, well before the pandemic started, then, then came the pandemic and now this is what we talk about all the time, flexible working, remote working, hybrid working. Do you have a little bit of that? I knew it. I told you so kind of uh, thought as, as all of this oh, is coming out. You know, I think, I feel like we all need a little less flexibility now. <laughs> you know, I do think we're a little bit ahead of our time. And I think that made it harder to scale, to be honest. I think uh, it's like the idea of like the taxi light has to be on. And I don't know if the taxi light was on yet for flexibility when, you know, we were building the company. Yeah. And I think the insight was right. Separate lessons learned on startup built this whole product market fit is a thing <laughs> and you do have to find it. No, I think about the fact that there's just so much more to solve, right? Like I think we had the pendulum one way. I think about the fact that pre-pandemic, we were fighting the good fight to have companies think about, you know, hybrid work from home, about, you know, flexible work hours, about different physical work environments, right? We started expanding to how do people need to and want to work best? And how do you eliminate the frictions that keep people back from advancing? Not just women, but people, right? We're ultimately all humans and life is messy. And what's interesting is we still have to solve that, right? In a post-pandemic world, yeah. I honestly think we're all lost in how we're going to work going forward. Uh, I think it was just yesterday, two days ago, where Malcolm Gladwell went on that rant about like, (laughs) exactly, we could talk about that. But you know what, it was a little bit, it was very polarizing. And you could argue, you know, sort of the negative connotations of what he said. On the other hand, like, he's got a point, like, you know, we are humans that you think about sort of cave people days, like we slept in groups, like we crave others, we crave contact with others, like there's safety in numbers. And so am I more efficient at home? And like, do I get more laundry done? Do I see my kids more? Sure. I'm at the office today and it's just been like, I ended up going to this very deep conversation with a colleague earlier. That's not going to happen on Zoom, you know? And so I don't know what the answer is. Personally, I can say, I don't want to go back five days a week. I I love some flexibility. And I also just like the change of scenery. Yeah. I don't think we're anywhere near done solving this. Like there's just an, and I think my startup never foresaw like, how could you have predicted a global pandemic that sent us all home for two plus years? Right, right. And, you know, as you say, everybody is trying to f- figure this out, right? We're all, you know, nobody has the answers. I'm not sure that a person who writes books for a living and, you know, probably spends a fair amount of his time not in an office environment is the best person to comment sure. on an office for environment. Sure. And that's probably that, that why he lit up the internet this weekend. As yeah, much- it was a... Uh, Oh, yeah. Well, and again, like, I, let's not forget about the fact that we're talking about people who have the luxury to work from home, right? Yeah. There's so many people that never had that luxury and were, you know, ended up being frontline workers and never intended to be frontline emergency personnel, right? And so it's a very complicated issue. And I think the the hard thing is, is that there's just not going to be an easy answer. And in the same way, you know, it, it's the idea that just like when you think about digital transformation in companies, trying to rebuild on a non-digital company and trying to do that digital transformation is actually quite difficult. Right. It's almost easier to build a digital company ground up, right? And so in the same way, 
we have so much legacy work culturally. We're, I'm sitting in Midtown. There's giant office buildings behind me and I can see in all the windows and they're empty, right? And right. so we have a lot of these vestiges of how we built up work and how sort of the origins of management, right? It's to make sure people were doing the work. I mean, this is all so silly, right? And if we designed how we work from scratch, we probably designed it a little bit differently. My hope is that we actually take the opportunity to not just make these small incremental changes and be like, oh, is it two or three days from home? Like that, that's a, honestly a silly conversation. It's an important conversation, but we're not having the real conversation, which is what does it mean to work and how does one work best? And why do we have a five-day work week, by the way? Like why? Like what, yeah. why? And so we could go on a whole thing here, but I think, think there's a much deeper conversation to be had around sort of what is the future of work? Yeah. I mean, look, we're in my company going through the same process everybody else is in terms of how many days a week and what do we want people doing in the office and does the office environment need to change? And some of this is, we'll figure out quickly, some of it's going to take longer, I think. I mean, I think solving this could take a generation, right? I mean, this is, we're trying to, it took us a long time to get to like what modern offices and modern management is. It's going to take a while to rebuild that too. And again, you know, you and I both talk more from sort of the white collar workforce perspective, but there's just so much more to talk about, you know, Our problem is accessing flexibility for people that are out employees. It's accessing stability, right? Their their problem is infinite flexibility and unpredictability. And so, you know, I, I think there's a a really, I think, I don't want to say the pandemic did anything good. It didn't do anything good, but I I hope that one positive effect that will last is we rethink how we all work and like what's important to us. And I, I generally. I see that. I see companies really thinking differently. It's definitely bimodal out there of companies that are snapping right back to five days and ones that are not. I think one of the interesting things I have seen from the seat that I sit is I think people are being a lot more open about what's important to them and their whole selves. And I think that's like really, really beautiful and wonderful. I mean, if you think about it, we spent two to three years now looking into people's living rooms, sometimes their bedrooms, (laughs) sometimes, you know, kids running behind them. Like that is very personal. And so yeah. I think it's almost given us the permission to actually be humans. And I think what we need to accept is work is intertwined with life. Like we spend an inor- a huge chunk of our waking live hours at work. And so trying to pretend that it is not meant to sort of integrate with your life and trying to create, you know, trying to pretend that your personal life doesn't exist is silly, right? You're only going to yeah. get to a good answer if you try to integrate the two a little bit better. Yeah. I had one moment last job was having a meeting with my team. And they fessed up to the fact that afterwards, you know, they were going back and forth and chat while we were having our team meeting about the fact that behind me, the bed hadn't been made. So, <laughs> oh, JR. Oh. <laughs> I know that was a rookie mistake. I just, you know, I think it was one of those mornings where I hopped on early and, you know, so just got going in the flow of the yeah. day and never really looked back. So well, my favorite is when I walk by my husband on like a Zoom call and we usually try to not both work at a home at the same time. And he's wearing like a night, sorry for everyone that knows my husband out there was like wearing like a dress shirt on top and like pajama shorts on the bottom is like my favorite look of like the pandemic. It's pandemic fashion. We're all guilty of that or like children running behind us. So I had a pitch the other day and my daughter busts in, followed by my son, followed by my nanny. I had like the trail of people bust in behind me. And honestly, my initial reaction was like, ha, you know, and it was like a first time client. I was like, and then I was like, Sorry, guys, like we're back to pandemic life. I'm sure you've all seen this before. I was like, give me one second. I went off video, went on mute. 
exited everyone from my office and was like, okay. And everybody had a good laugh about it. And so I think it's okay yeah. to not also be embarrassed when those things happen. I have a friend whose family gave her, I forget whether it was for her birthday or mother's day. It was a joke gift. They had a, a light system. So like one light color outside a door meant it's okay to come in. One light meant come in if it's really important. One color meant come in and you're in deep trouble. <laughs> I, I see. I wish I had that. I don't know. Although my daughter probably wouldn't have listened to it, but it was, yeah, I thought, see, that would be helpful. It'd be helpful. Go back to the start, you know, back to before you and I met when you were interviewing for that job at McKinsey. How did you end up at Brandeis and zeroing in on McKinsey as a possible first employer? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll take you way, way back for a moment. So I moved to the U.S. from the Ukraine. I was born in Kiev. And so we came to the U.S. and I was six on refugee status, actually. So my family and I are Jewish. At the time, if you were Jewish, like there was no life that you could have. And so right. there was a refugee opportunity and we landed in the Boston area. You know, so I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. The values placed in me at that age were like hardworking, tenacious. It's so funny. Somebody at work recently called me fearless. And I was like, I have a choice. <laughs> you just throw it, you know, well, I always sit, tell a story of, so my mom studied English in college. My dad didn't speak any English when we moved to the States. So she actually found a job first and went back to night school, which is like a huge inspiration to me as like a strong woman. But she sent me to kindergarten here and I didn't speak any English except she taught me one word, which was bathroom. As you can imagine for a kindergartner, that's pretty important because yeah. um, the, the downside scenario of not, not knowing that word is really bad. So I was always tenacious, fearless, you know, Brandeis, you know, I don't actually know exactly how I made my college decision. I applied to five colleges in the Boston area and well, I'll tell you how I made the decision. I got a scholarship and that was important to my family at the time. And I think um, it's funny. I, I still remember, and it smarts a little bit. I got into Brown, but we couldn't afford it. And it was just mm. not possible financially. And I still remember getting the financial aid worksheet and it's like your parents' incomes and then like subtract taxes. It's like fun first forays in economics. And then they're like, your estimated ability to pay was literally like everything my parents had. And I was like, that's not possible. But went to Brandeis and it was actually great to stay local. I think it was like my training wheels of uh, leaving the nest. But I was always very, I think as soon as I got there, I realized like I wanted to go explore, you know, and I feel like I'd always been in the Boston area growing up. Like I want to see the great world world. So ended up studying abroad, ended up graduating a semester early. I think it was that itch in me. And how I got to McKinsey was, it was a funny way. So I, I ended up having an internship at Lehman Brothers, my junior year summer when Lehman existed, which I can say now. And I I was so grateful for the opportunity. I like could not believe I got that job. I still remember like that super interview day. Like I have no idea how I got that internship, but I learned a ton. I didn't love it that summer. It was just sitting, staring at spreadsheets. And I think funny enough, the spark of people, and that's been the thread of my career was planted then. And I felt like I wasn't engaging with people and I wasn't engaging with the clients. And, you know, I was sitting in a spreadsheet most of the day and night and yeah. It felt like something was missing. And I remember we bumped into a happy hour of consultant interns and I was like, ah, this is it. And like typical, you know, fearless, tenacious me. I was like, I will apply to every consulting firm that I find in the vault.com. So what you might not know, JR, is I applied to 30 consulting firms, 32. And I had a whole Excel sheet and that's how I kept track of it. I had no idea where I was applying at the time. I knew McKinsey, I knew Bain BCG, I knew some others, but I think it's funny that you remember that interview day because I will tell you, I have no idea how I got the job. I felt like that whole imposter syndrome thing. I did not. Yeah. I was, I kept that whole day. I was like, I'm going to be found out. I'm definitely going to be found out. And somebody's going to tell me, thank you, Anna. 
he can go. But I have to say, I'm just so grateful for that. I think that set me up on everything that happened after. And I feel like the connections were so valuable. So my closest friends are my McKinsey analysts. Yeah. My husband in a way through McKinsey, right? It's been so formative to me. And I've actually, one of the special things is there's never been a McKinsey person I reached out to for help that said no. Alumni, current employee, like, so it is amazing how those little things are just so formative in your career. It is a good place to start a career and you get a very broad exposure. You know, I look back, I learned a lot. I stayed too long. The last few years were not as fun for me as the yeah. as the first few years, certainly. But, you know, I gained a ton from the time that I spent there. I do remember, you know, just going back to that day that you came in and interviewed and we got together. I, I want to say you were probably the only person from Brandeis we saw or one of very few because Brandeis just wasn't one of you the... Know why? Well, because you guys didn't recruit, not you guys, McKinsey didn't recruit, right? And I still remember, so I knew I was the underdog, like I knew it. And I I kept calling. So that's, by the way, my theme of tenacity is I kept calling up and be like, do you need a reference? I have reference letters for you. (laughs) Do you want a writing sample? I was like, I have all the things. And you know, what's funny is I, but McKinsey gave me a chance because I still remember both Bain and BCG actually told me. Like you're a non-core school, so we'll call you after we get through our core schools. Yeah. Which, oh my gosh, how brutal, right? Like as like a 22-year-old to hear that. But yes, I imagine there were not any other Brandeis folks. That may well well be true. And, you know, we're guilty probably of the same thing of having a set of core schools. But, you know, something you did along the way got you through the recruiting team. And, you know, the message was not from one of our core schools, but you should see this woman because, you know, She's persistent and has fought for it. And, you know, when we got into the decision meeting that day, I remember having the conversation about let's take the chance and I'm glad we did. It's worked out well for you. So glad it worked out well for McKinsey and worked out well for you. So yeah, it was, uh, no, and I think, you know, it's interesting for the caliber of companies you're talking about, like the top consulting firms, top banks, top tech companies. I think they're incredible boot camps. And like, yeah. I almost, I don't know a better term, but they're kind of like finishing school. Like I love, I hate that term. Like there needs, mm-hmm. I'm going to find a better one for the future, but I think they're sort of the apprenticeship. Yeah. Because the reality is you graduate college, not knowing a whole heck of a lot about what, you know, real work is like. And so I think I am always in support of somebody doing a stint at one of those big top firms. And to your point, like for most people, it ages out, right? For most people, it is time to move on. Right. And there's folks that are lifers and that's awesome. And they stay and they have a perfectly fulfilling career. And in fact, many of my peers ended up staying and have like wonderful, fulfilling careers. For many people, it is a stepping stone. And, but regardless, it's valuable. It's valuable for the company to have those employees there for the time that they're there. And for you, it's valuable. And I have to say, even being on the search side of things, like getting those stamps does matter, right? And I think, yeah. um, I think about even like my product searches, we, we often explicitly look for somebody that has what we call best in class product. Like I think doing something that is the best in class of that industry yeah. gives you training. You see what good looks like at scale. You see sort of a, a much more systematic approach to whatever it is, product, strategy, finance, like whatever it is your thing. But then I think for many people, you don't really get to spread your wings until you do something that is a little scrappier, that is a little bit more operational. And for, for some folks, you know, the, those big companies are their career. And for others, they spread their wings only when they go smaller, scrappier. You know, you've done a lot of different things. You've done consulting, you've done nonprofit work, you've done HR software, which you started on your own. 
Now you're doing executive search. Do you feel like you've found a home at this point or is this another chapter and maybe there will be more chapters to come? I mean, the reason I joined is because I saw a wide open ocean. I don't know if there's any more chapters, right? It's impossible to know. But for now, I feel like I found a wonderful home. And I think the fact that, you know, one of the things that sold me so much is, is you look at the people who've been at Egon Center for 20 years, they started as like one thing and then evolved to another and to another. And so for me, I think the moves, my career has obviously been opportunistic. There's no grand design. I used to have five-year yeah. plans. Those got thrown out a good decade ago. So I don't know what the master plan is, but I think some of the more interesting careers are people who are opportunistic. And I think following your passions, following the people, following also what works in that stage of your life is really, really important. So for me, this is my home. And I feel like there's so many things I could do here. Is there another chapter? I don't know. There's a long, there's a lot of working left. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, a lot of years left. So we'll see how things play out. What do you do to recharge your battery? You got, you know, two kids at home and a busy job. What do you do to decompress? I don't know. I need to find something. I, you know, for me, it is actually like exercise. And I know that sounds like super cheesy, but I am, I talk fast. I'm working on slowing it down. I move fast. I think my brain always goes a mile a minute. You know, it's interesting. I think it's just how I'm wired. And so for me, I realized that I can only clear my mind when I'm moving. And it's like equally physical, but it's also mental health, right? So for me, I try to exercise or do something that keeps me moving every day. That's super important to me. And then being in the outdoors whenever I can. Like, I love New York City. I'm, I think we're New York City lifers at this point. I love the energy of the city, but I think the best recharge for me and actually for us as a family is being out in nature, be it at the beach, in the mountains. And now that hopefully we can travel again, it's going to be travel like that. You see the yeah. pictures behind me, like, I get my inspiration from travel. I think what what yeah. what are the what are the places behind you? Oh yeah, so they're my two favorite places I've been to. So the one right here is Aytab and Hadou in Morocco, and so mm-hmm. Morocco is just and actually it's funny. There's the two polar opposite places because the other one is East Greenland, and so two of my favorite trips that are just so different. But to me, both places were just so rich in culture and stories. And I think I took so much inspiration for different reasons from each place. The more I'm in places that are completely different from me and from who I am, the more I recharge and reset. Um, yeah. My screensaver is from the summit of Mount Tubkal in oh, wow. Morocco. So spectacular climb. It was, yeah, I love Morocco. I love like the food, the culture, the people, like all, all of it. And then Greenland was powerful for all sorts of different things. It was um, the natural beauty, but also the reminder of deeper story for anybody that ends up Googling it, you know, the Westernification of Greenland and like mm. disruption of you know, kind of um, the, you know, societies is, was one of the problems, right? So like thinking about how not imposing like the better way to do things and the Western way to do things doesn't always help. It was actually a difficult trip from that standpoint, but also just like a really important reminder for all of us to just yeah. be a little bit more aware of, you know, kind of the values of the rest of the world. Any final thoughts to share? I don't know. We talked, we covered so much, JR. Yeah, well, I mean, you're a fast talker. Exactly. I just get twice as much done. <laughs> I think the big thing is, like, listen, there's no right or easier answers to careers. The thing I would say about startups and careers have things in common, which is the market's always talking to you. You just have to listen. And so I'm actually a big fan of, you can design a career, but there's even in a well-designed five, 10-year plan, there's a time to be opportunistic. So the market's always talking to you. You just, you just have to listen. And so being receptive to what you're feeling taking those leaps when you have the chance to, I think is really, really important. Yeah, it's good advice. I mean, back to what you said earlier about taking the call, you know, worst case, it's like 10 minutes out of your life, right? 
hear somebody talk about something and, you know, maybe they learn a little bit about you. You certainly learn a little bit about whatever opportunity that they've got. And, you know, there's only good things can come out of that knowledge. Exactly. And again, don't forget, it's not just about you, right? I, I'm so big on like community and connections. Like if somebody is reaching out to you about a role that you're not interested in, take 10 minutes, learn about it and think yeah. about your friends. Yeah. Think about the impact that you can have like, and in terms of your friends' careers, right? They might not be getting the same call. And so I am so big on this, like pay it forward. I think we do so much better together than apart. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I know you've got rest of the day ahead of you and uh, I appreciate the time. It was great catching up. It's been a long so time. So hopefully, hopefully we will keep in more regular contact going forward, which is one of the reasons why I started doing these. They're, you know, great kind of reconnect discussion topics, them. you know? Yeah. This is a joy. So I so super appreciate the time and opportunity. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you as well. And have a great rest of your day. Awesome. I'd like to thank Anna for joining me today and sharing her impressive career story and immense number of learnings about the search firm world. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.